Amen. So I don't know how many of you are into this series of movies, but one of my favorite ones to watch is the Hobbit slash Lord of the Rings series. And I thought it fit well, if we're talking about a king today, that we introduce it by talking about kind of a similar concept that we see in the Lord of the Rings. So in the Lord of the Rings, you have the city of Gondor, which some of you may have no idea what I'm talking about, but that's okay. But what happens is, over the series of years, with all the stuff that's happened with the rings and the war that happens and the evil versus the good, at at this point, uh, when you finally find out about this city of Gondor, there is a man ruling who is a steward, but he's not the king. There's a true heir to the throne that has not yet taken over the throne as he's meant to. And so you have this steward that's ruling who really you find him quite depressed about the situation because evil continues to seem to grow in this world and seems that evil is going to finally wipe out all of mankind. And so he kind of has this depression. He finds out that one of his sons is killed. He ends up thinking his second son dies throughout the movies. But by the time we get to the end of The Lord of the Rings, one of the characters who was introduced in towards the very beginning, who is a member of the very first part of the group trying to deal with the situation of evil, you have Aragorn, who is the true heir to the throne of Gondor. So there's this anticipation pretty much throughout all three of these three or four hour movies of at some point this true heir to the throne of Gondor will finally take on the throne. And you see that this is kind of the the climax at the end of the final movie where he finally gets to be the king that he was meant to be. So just like that, we come to the Bible, we come to the Old Testament specifically, and there's this anticipation of Israel needs a king. All of these kings that they've had have not been fully what they needed. They may have been used at the time for a specific purpose, but there's this anticipation for one true final king that's going to establish a throne forever. Right? This this concept of king has been playing out throughout the entire Bible. Right from the get-go, Adam and Eve, right? What are they told? To exercise dominion over creation. There's this ruling aspect to to even Adam and Eve's first command to them. But we see they fail at this, right? They don't exercise dominion over the serpent. They let him exercise dominion over them. So then we, find, we get over to the flood, right? Mankind has failed to rule as they were meant to. So the flood happens. The Tower of Babel, they refuse to spread out and rule over the world. They try to stay in one place. So God says, I'm going to make you spread out. We come to Abraham, where God kind of is starting fresh, right? I'm going to make a nation out of you. And he says to Abraham and to Jacob, there will be kings that come from you. We get to Deuteronomy chapter 17, where Israel's now freed from Egypt, about to enter the promised land, and God says, you're going to want to have a king. Now, whether this is right or not, we don't really, he doesn't really establish it, because we think God's supposed to be the king, isn't he? But God gives them permission in Deuteronomy to have a king. He says, you're going to want one, so this is what's going to happen when you ask for one. And then we go throughout the book of Judges, and we see Israel needs a king. 
The repeated phrase in Judges is what? Everybody did right what was in their own eyes. Okay, we need someone to rule, someone for the people to follow. But then we get to 1 Samuel chapter 8, and we see Israel says, we want a king. And Samuel says, are you sure you know what that means? Right? The king is going to put all these taxations, all these things in place. Are you sure you want this? And he knew that God had already said this was going to happen, but he wanted to warn them of what might come from it. They end up having King Saul, who is their idea of what's a good king. Israel asked for Saul because he looked good, like the rest of the nation's kings. We find out Saul was not the greatest choice. We come to God's choice, David. Now, David isn't perfect by any means, but we see that he is a man after God's own heart, so much to the point that in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God tells David, I'm going to make a covenant with you, and your offspring, one of your offspring, will sit on the throne forever. Forever. Right? There's this offspring of David, this child from David. We've talked about this before in this series already, right? That is going to sit on the throne, and it will be established forever. But it doesn't happen right away, right? David's offspring, Solomon, takes on the throne, builds the Lord the temple, and immediately after Solomon, what happens? Israel breaks into two nations. You have Israel and you have Judah. And then you have years and years of mostly evil kings in both of those nations. You might have a few good ones sporadically involved. And we get to the point where Israel has failed so much, both kingdoms have failed so much, that God takes them into exile. Which leaves Israel asking, where's our king? This one that's supposed to come from David, where's this one king that's going to establish a throne forever? And that brings us to today, where the prophets in the midst of exile, or heading to exile, or after exile, are telling Israel... There's a king that's coming. We're going to look at three specific aspects of this king that the prophets tell us. The first one is we see that this is a humble king. Right? Much like when we think of the idea of king, we think of Lord of the Rings. Right? When you think of king, you think someone riding on a horse with a sword in hand and having military victory over things. And though we do see elements of this in Jesus when we get to his second coming in Revelation, we understand also that his first coming was nothing like that. He wasn't coming with a sword in hand. He wasn't coming riding on a horse. He has a much more humble beginning. In fact, rather than a horse, let's see what he comes riding on. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So there's a promise of a king coming, but it's a humble king mounted on what? A donkey. Imagine this. Imagine the Lord of the Rings. And someone, you have all of these 
enemies coming at you, and you decide your one true king is going to go riding out to defeat them on his donkey. Not what you expect, right? How victorious is this king if he comes riding on a donkey? Isn't he supposed to deliver us from Rome? How's he going to do that on a colt? How's he going to do that? But we see this played out later in Jesus' life, right? We don't see this necessarily played out. The donkey part played out at the beginning of Jesus' life. But we know when this happens, right? The week Jesus is going to be killed, he enters into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. In the week that Jesus is about to give victory over sin, he comes riding on a humble little donkey. But let's fast forward to the New Testament and talk about Jesus' birth for a moment even. Does he come in the expected kingly sort of way? I mean, Jesus could have been born to a royal family. There could have been lots of celebration feasts. He could have been born basically with a sword in hand if he was born into the right military family. But instead, what happens? He's born to a virgin. Right? He's born surrounded by animals, wrapped in swaddling cloths, and laid in a manger. And who comes to visit him? Not royalty, but smelly old shepherds. What kind of king is this? We have to realize that when we think of humility, and when Israel thought of humility, they may not have been thinking biblically about the idea of humility. Because in their world and in our world, to say that someone's going to be born in a manger wearing tattered clothes and riding on a donkey instead of a horse is, is an element of weakness in these worlds. That somehow this puts you at a disadvantage in life. It makes you less valuable because you weren't born with this sort of royal mentality. But the biblical concept of humility tells us something different. It tells us before Jesus ever entered into our world, he had everything. He already had it all. It all was at his beckoning. It was at his fingertips as he was living in relationship with the Father for all eternity past. But what did he do? Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Christ didn't hold on to all he had as being one with God in eternity past. Instead, he emptied himself of all of it, taking on human flesh, humbling himself even to the point of death, death on a cross. And then what happens? The Father exalts him. You see, because in their world and in our world, we often think humility and exaltation are opposites of each other. 
But in Christ's life, we see that exaltation is the result of humility. There's a reason why Jesus says, the last shall be first, and the first will be last. Those who humble themselves to be last will be exalted to first. So humility is not thinking less of yourself, as in thinking of yourself as less valuable. Humility is thinking of yourself less, as in less often because you're so consumed with counting others more significant than yourself, like Christ did. Christ didn't find himself less valuable when he took on flesh, but he considered other people so significant that he emptied himself of all of his power that he might go to the point of death on a cross. Right? So humility is not finding yourself less valuable in, as much as it is thinking about yourself less often because you're so much thinking about the significance of other people. Let me illustrate this for you. There was a, there's a story of a pastor who invited an older man to come up and speak at their church. And he came up to speak and he sees two young boys sitting up front laughing and giggling and not paying attention, of course. But he begins this story, and he tells the story of of this man who him and his son loved to go out and fish. And so one day, his son's about 16, and he knows his son is a believer in Jesus. His son invites a friend to go along who doesn't believe in Jesus. And they go out on whatever body of water is. It must be large enough that there was a storm that began as they were fishing. Ends up flipping them overboard. Father gets back on the boat and grabs the life draft and looks out and sees in two different directions the friend and his son. And he has to make the decision. And in that moment, this man gives, is given peace by God, saying, you know your son is saved. Throw the raft to the other one. So he does. He throws the life raft to his son's friend, saves him. Once he pulls him in the boat, he looks out and his son is gone. He can't see him anymore. The old man tells the story and walks off stage. The two little boys come up to him afterwards. And they say, there's no way. There's no way that that dad doesn't throw the raft to his son instead of the friend. And he says, go talk to your pastor. He was the friend. Humility is not so much of finding yourself less valuable as much as it is considering others more significant than yourself or even more significant than your own family at times. Brothers and sisters, if our king comes in humility, how much more humble should we as his followers be? God is not impressed with the title of your occupation. He's not impressed with the size of your bank account. And he's not impressed by the cost of your house. God's not impressed by how many big names you know in town or how many big names know your name. Jesus is the true, perfect king of all all humanity, and he's born surrounded by animals and smelly shepherds. And he continues his ministry, never seeking to abuse his power for his own popularity. God's main concern for you is faithfulness to him and your elevation of finding others more significant than yourself. 
Not that you're seeking their popularity or their glory, but you're seeking to serve them. So ask yourself the question, how many decisions do you make in a day that are consumed about yourself versus being in consideration of others? Do you consider others more significant than yourself? Because that's what a humble person does. That's what our humble king did. But we see this isn't all the humble king brings along. We see he brings something else. Point number two, we see that he is the savior king. He's the humble king. He's the savior king. He comes bringing salvation. Look at Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, yet again. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. As he comes riding on this donkey, he's bringing salvation with him. Though it's unexpected on a donkey, there's still deliverance, this redemption aspect to what this coming king is going to bring. But Israel wants a different kind of salvation than the salvation this king is bringing. Israel wants saved from their enemies, right? They're oppressors. It's Rome when Jesus comes. It's Assyria in the midst of exile or Babylon in the midst of exile later on. Just look at Micah. You probably know this verse. Chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Right? A ruler to come from Bethlehem. But look at what he's going to do. Skip down to verse 5. And he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. There's salvation from what they think is Assyria. But we also find out that later Babylon takes over Assyria, so now Babylon's the one oppressing them. Then Persia takes over, then Greece takes over, then Rome takes over. Right? So it's not just Assyria that this coming king is going to defeat. Instead, we fast forward to the New Testament, we see there's a king born in Bethlehem, just like Micah said. Or look at what the shepherds are told, right? In the city of David, born to you this day, is a savior who is Christ the Lord. Or what is Joseph told when the angel appears to him? He will save his people from their sins. So while Israel is waiting for freedom from Rome, Christ comes redeeming them and us from much worse than Rome. Right? This is the gospel. God God sends Jesus to, to not only to not only die for our sins, but to give us new life through his resurrection. But Israel doesn't understand the problem. They think their problem is political rather than spiritual. We had a situation, I don't know, probably a couple months back, where 
we had somebody contacting our church asking for financial help, which happens from time to time. And I'm not one to just hand out money without knowing a situation or knowing a person or trying to find more out about how to help them in the right way. Um, So I talked with the deacons and we ended up talking with, we found out that, that this family had regularly been taking funds from another church um, that they were just kind of coming to us because they had run out of funds from that church, so they were coming to us for some. And I, anyway, I told the person that we would not be able to give funds that day, right? Like, I think it's right for us to find out about the situation. I've, I've been part of churches where they actually have, like, an application people fill things out, right? So I said, I'm not going to be able to just hand you cash right here now for you to go pay whatever it is you're saying you're trying to pay for. Right? So I said, I couldn't do that today, but I offered something else. I said, maybe as we could sit down and talk about your situation, I said, maybe we could even work together, our church, or even myself as someone who's worked in banking before, and I could help you figure out where your budget went wrong so you could maybe afford this, or maybe there's things you need to cut back on so that you can afford this, because they were claiming that it was a necessity that they needed the money for. The person contacted me back and said... Forget about it, another church gave me the money. They didn't recognize what their problem was, right? They thought their problem was just, I need to get this payment done so I can continue on life just the same. The reality is they have a spending problem that they need to figure out how to budget things rightly so they can afford the basic necessities of life. Right? Now, I'm not saying people don't come across hard times and can't afford things, but what I'm saying is they're refusing to even look at that as a possibility. They're just saying, give me the money so I can make my payment. I'll ask for it again next month if I need it. That's Israel. And that can often be us, right? God, come help me through this time in life, but I don't want to have to commit everything to you. But he comes and saves us from our biggest problem. Brothers and sisters, this coming Savior saves you from your biggest problem, which is you. Your urge within your sinful flesh is you want yourself to be king. Isn't that what Adam and Eve wanted? Isn't that the lie the serpent told them? God doesn't want you to eat because it will make you like him. Every time you sin you can find some element of this in it. When you yell at somebody instead of forgive them when they've wronged you, it's because you've put yourself in the kingly position of saying, I get to determine justice in this situation. I don't have to forgive someone and let God determine justice. I get to determine justice. Or when you buy expensive things, maxing out your budget, it's because you're worried about building your own castle rather than God's kingdom. Or think of children, right? We've had a few of them here in our service today. Think of children. When a child tells you no, or says, I don't want to, what are they doing? They're grasping at the throne. They're saying, I need to sit on the throne. I can tell you what I should should and shouldn't be able to do. I can tell you that I can eat chocolate for breakfast. But Christ comes, and he dethrones us. 
Christ transfers us from the dominion of darkness into the, his kingdom of marvelous light. But what that means from now on, brothers and sisters, is the throne doesn't belong to you and me anymore. He determines your steps. He determines your life. He determines your desires. He determines your hopes. And this is a permanent shift of power forever. This shift of power doesn't just happen when you're in need of something. This shift in power happens forever. You are dethroned forever. Because this coming king is a king who remains forever. Which is our last point. The everlasting king. Now we've covered some of this passage before. But I'll just catch a different element of it. Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 6. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But look at verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it, with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So the government, this king that comes, this child that comes, will take the government upon his shoulders, but it will be forever. There will be no end to it. This kingdom will be established and will be upheld forevermore. We've touched on this before as we've gotten into the Gospel of John. You see it all the more in Gospels like Matthew and Luke. Jesus starts off his ministry in Matthew and in Mark. He starts off with the phrase, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Kingdom language. Jesus starts his ministry saying, There's a new kingdom that's being ushered into all of this. This is the kingdom Isaiah is talking about. There's a new kingdom that starts when Jesus enters the world. A kingdom of which there will never be an end. You see, Jesus also, though, speaks of a future day when he says, you will or will not enter the kingdom. So there's twofold to this. There's a kingdom that enters the here and now with Jesus entering, but there's also a fullness of that kingdom that has not yet appeared. But what we do know is this child being born in Bethlehem, laid in a manger, is ushering in a kingdom that will have no end. A kingdom that is here to stay forever. Brothers and sisters, the entrance of an everlasting kingdom means every day eternal results are at stake. You and each and every person you meet has an eternity where you will spend either an eternity of torment or an eternity of happiness. We often can, cannot grasp this idea of eternity, so we often put it off. Let me read something to you from a man named Jonathan Edwards, which you may have heard, heard of before. He was a 
a pastor a few hundred years ago up in New England. And he gives this sermon, and he gives this little blurb in it that I want to read to you. And he's talking about the torment side of eternity, but he's talking about the eternal aspect of it, something we often forget about. So I'm not reading this to scare any of you, okay? So don't, yeah, I'm, doing, I'm reading this for us to try to even start to wrap our minds around what it means to say this kingdom is everlasting or eternal, so our decisions every day have eternal consequences to them. Consider how dreadful despair will be in such torment. How dismal will it be when you are under these racking torments to know assuredly that you never, never shall be delivered from them. To have no hope when you shall wish that you might be turned into nothing but shall have no hope of it. When you shall wish that you might be turned into a toad or a serpent but shall have no hope of it. When you would rejoice if you might but have any relief After you shall have endured these torments millions of ages, but shall have no hope of it. After you shall have worn out the age of the sun, moon, and stars, and your groans and lamentations, without rest, day or night, or one minute's ease, yet you shall have no hope of ever being delivered. After you shall have worn a thousand more such ages, you shall have no hope, but shall know that you are not one whit near to the end of your torments. But that still there are the same groans, the same shrieks, the same cries, incessantly to be made by you, and that the smoke of your torment shall still ascend up forever and ever. Your souls, which shall have been agitated with the wrath of God all this while, will still exist to bear more wrath. Your bodies which shall have been burning all this while in these glowing flames, shall not have been consumed, but will remain to roast through eternity, which will not have been at all shortened by what shall have been past. Imagine that eternity, that the sun, moon, and stars have passed away, and you're no closer to the end. But brothers and sisters, if you've trusted in Jesus, your eternity is the exact opposite. That your happiness will never end. That once the sun, moon, and stars are worn out, your joy is no closer to ending. Your joy will continue on. So I don't read this to scare you, but just to wrap our minds around the idea of eternity, we can't forget that this king... This kingdom being ushered in is one that goes on forever. And each and every day, we're making decisions that have results in eternity. First of all, whether to trust Jesus or not. But second of all, whether to tell others about Jesus or not. Or in in how you're going to relate to every single person that is a believer or not a believer has eternal bearing, right? You're affecting the lives of other people. So as you meditate this week, as you celebrate Christmas, this coming child, know this, that he is a promised king, a king that Israel had long waited for, the king that humanity needed, and he was a humble king, 
He didn't come in arrogance. He didn't come in violence, but with peace, with gentleness, with the elevation of others over himself. He came as the Savior King to save mankind from our core problem, ourselves, the sin within ourselves, that he might dethrone us so that we might worship him. And he comes as an everlasting king. As a child comes and ushers in a kingdom that goes on forever. A kingdom where you will forever be able to spend in the full presence of our God. Have you given up your throne? Have you humbled yourself before him? Are you displaying that same humility to the world around you by considering others more significant than yourself? And doing all of this in light of eternity. Knowing one day you and everyone you know will enter an eternal fate. You will either enter this kingdom that's ushered in by this baby born in Bethlehem. Or a kingdom of eternal torment. May we all, this Christmas season, be humbled by, be dethroned by, and give our worship to this King. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would humble us. Give us an understanding of who we are that we're sinners in the hands of a righteous God. We're also sinners who can be saved by this coming King. We can trust in Him. We can be dethroned by Him and put Him on the throne and enter into this kingdom in which we will spend forever and ever with you. May we begin to understand as we come into Christmas this week that this child we celebrate is the king. Though he doesn't look like what we would expect as a king, nonetheless, that's who he is. May we spend this week, this time of year especially, giving our hearts fully to the worship of this king in the Christmas season. May we not get caught up in the things that are of this earthly kingdom. May we get bound up. May our hearts desire and yearn to give worship to the true king, the one who saves us. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.